Here we are in the lazy days of August, considering the end times. It's kind of a juxtaposition that I think many of us would rather have stayed in bed for today. These words from Jesus are arresting and difficult, and indeed, they do bring to our attention that we don't understand how all of this works, and God and God's authority will make decisions sometimes that we don't expect. This is how we as finite people wrestle with this infiniteness of God. We talk about the end times, the coming judgment, because we are very linear thinkers, and we can't help but try to put this in some sort of chronological order to make sense of it. The problem, though, with that in relationship to today's text is that we can be so focused on ourselves, whether or not we're in, whether or not you're in, whether or not we need to worry or to change our ways, that we forget to focus on the one who reveals the answer. The one who ultimately makes the decision is always making the decision, inviting us into participating into the work that God is already doing. So many of us read this passage and use it to justify our difference or our division or being against another. We might read this and say, see, I'm against you just as Jesus said would happen. That's how I know that I'm right and you're wrong. We seem compelled or drawn to division in order to understand ourselves. And as Richard Rohr, a great Franciscan teacher says, to focus on our division is an egocentric activity. It's an exercise of knowing ourselves against another. I'm not you, so that means I'm this. And although that can be very helpful on some occasions, to, and when we focus on that over and over again, we limit ourselves to understanding the depth of who we are in relationship to one another. And that's when it goes bad. Jesus says that he has come to bring division, but that's not his goal. A new kingdom is Jesus' goal. And Jesus won't let anything stand in the way of that, not even family relationships and responsibilities. Do you remember back a few weeks ago, it was at the end of June, when we heard a few little snippets of Jesus engaging people who wanted to follow him, and they said, I want to, but one of them said, I have to go bury my parents, and then I'm, I'm ready. And Jesus has these seemingly harsh words, let the dead bury the dead. Do you remember that passage? It was the last Sunday of June. It's when I invited some of the millennial and Gen Z people of our congregation to reflect on this passage. It's like, goodness, Jesus, you are harsh. But Jesus is bringing about a new kingdom and he's looking for people who are willing to follow him and participate in what he's doing. And so of course division is going to happen because it's up to us to decide whether or not we participate. And in our decision to participate, we will inevitably find people who don't want to come along. And that's where the division happens. This purifying fire, this, this thing, this thing that makes us separate from the, the things of this world, it proves to be one that few people want to enter into this transformation, even though what they want is on the other side. But golly, the transformation, oh, it's so hard and it doesn't always feel that great. There is no way to have the power and the confidence and the desire to be transformed 
without God's help. It's with God's help that we begin to see that there could be another way, that we begin to see that we might let ourselves go enough to be molded and shaped, that we might allow ourselves to be put in the refiner's fire to where all that comes out is the purity of gold. We can't do that without God's help. And don't you know, God is always willing to help. I'm reminded as I read this passage, this gospel passage today of chapter 14 in John's gospel, where Jesus is telling the disciples what is going to happen, and he is centering God, the Father, this intimate relationship, and he says, we are one, and you are one with the Father, just as you are one in me, and I am in him. You know, it goes all this, this way of talking about this mystery. And Philip, one of the disciples, he has this moment of discomfort or uncertainty, and he says to Jesus, show us the Father and we will be satisfied. And Jesus says, Philip, have you not been with me every day for three years? If you don't believe me, believe the works themselves. Jesus has this measure of frustration, like what is it going to take for you to understand who I am and to trust me and to enter into relationship with me and to allow yourselves to come into a new reality which is better than anything you can imagine? What is it going to take? And we say, uh, like Philip, we say, um, show us the Father. And Jesus says, what do you think all of this has been? He doesn't actually say that. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, ad-living here, but you get the sentiment, right? Haven't you ever felt that way, even in relationship to another person? How is it that we allow ourselves to be shaped by what God is doing in this world, what God envisions for this world, so that we can learn to let God move through us and transform us into what God has in mind? Jesus wishes something would happen that would make you make me, make the people of that time, something would happen that would make us finally decide to believe. I have come to bring a fire, and oh, how I wish it were already kindled. Something that would make you believe. I've come to a baptism, and how I wish I were already baptized. What do I have to do? In fact, we know that even when Jesus did radically crazy things in his actions, like healing a withered hand on the Sabbath, or, you know, stopping a woman from bleeding after 12 years, or raising people from the dead, whether it be a Roman centurion or a Canaanite woman's daughter, like, even that, people are like, "Mm, I don't know. I don't know. So I I can feel Jesus' longing to bring us into something more and the powerlessness that he has taken on in humanity to bring that about. He's inviting us to the side. We are the ones that have the option to enter into a new way of being. And since I can't decide for you, we might end up separated in the process. In fact, Jesus knows it's going to be the case. It's inevitable. We will be separated in the process of his kingdom building. And yet what Jesus is trying to build, this kingdom where he is the cornerstone, is a kingdom which is for all people. And the Hebrew people are the first fruits of this universal salvation. 
And where Jesus gets frustrated is where the Hebrew people forget that they're the first of all, where they want to center around and it just be about them. This is really what lights Jesus's fire. And it still lights God's fire. When will we learn that we will be saved together or not at all? I want to share with you a few ways that we might be wrestling with this in our common life, this sense of division and hope and opportunity for what God has in mind. I want to start with the Poor People's Campaign, an effort that the Episcopal Church, the whole country, has supported, is supporting. And you might remember that a group of us from Connecticut went down there. It was on the same day as Erica's ordination, which was regrettable, especially because she wanted to go. Um, but it, the whole message of the Poor People's Campaign is that when you raise from the bottom, everybody raises. Everybody gets lifted up. And they try to bring to people's attention something that will move folks to notice this fact, this truth. At the end of the event, the Moral March on Washington on June 19th, I found boxes of banners and things, and so I collected some I want to share with you now. This first one says, there are 140 million poor and low-income people in the U.S. 43% of the population, 52% of children, and 30%, 32% of the electorate. Native tribes have lost 99% of their ancestral land. This is a demand for rights and sovereignty of First Nations, Native Americans, and Alaskan Natives. Nearly 14 million families can't afford water. The demand is an end to water and utility shutoffs. Are you starting to feel your divisions? 39 million workers earned less than $15 an hour in 2021. We demand a living wage. Poor communities are hit first and worst by climate crisis. We demand a bold climate agenda that puts the poor first. Maybe you're hearing these and thinking, I like that one, I don't like that one. Deportations and detentions separate and destroy communities. We demand comprehensive, just immigration reform. Billionaire wealth increased over $2 trillion during the pandemic. We demand fair taxes on the wealthy, corporations, and Wall Street. And finally, 250,000 people die every year from poverty and inequality in the U.S. We demand to lift from the bottom so everybody rises. That's the mantra over and again, lift from the bottom so everybody rises. When you hear these statistics, you might say, well, that's because, or I know, but that's not really the primary concern. The primary concern is you might find yourself finding the divisions in these pieces. But this universal commitment to all of us is what the Poor People's Campaign is all about. And at that rally on June 19th, um, Bishop Reverend Barber, um, he at the end had different organizations come up and talk about their, how our efforts are interconnected. And they all kind of took their soapbox and said, this is what we do and we do that and this and that. And he said, I'm sorry, I'm gonna have to get preacher on you. We already know what you do. The point is we are working together for the sake of all of us. That's what I need you to focus on. 
He said that actually three times because it was so hard for people to not think in their little individual world. Now we know that the solutions to our ills are not all on a public sphere. There's a private component as well. And this is often where people find their divisions. This should be public, this should be private. The point is we're trying to work together for all of humanity. Michael and I were at a friend's anniversary party yesterday and got to talk to some of our good friends, good friends. And one of the guys is in a tech startup, having been a doctor for many years. And this tech startup is focused on helping cancer patients organize all of their stuff. And they work with cancer patients to keep their schedule organized so they can find out where their treatments are from all these different things. They work to get grants for um, people who are receiving cancer treatment because it can get so expensive. They work to negotiate, na navigate insurance stuff. And I said, oh my gosh, this is so fantastic because it's overwhelming and most people don't know how to make all this work. And then when you get cancer, it's a crisis and time is of the essence. Where are you going to get your help? You don't even know the landscape or the way. And so to have an organization like this, he's like, we save millions of dollars in the whole picture because of this effort. And that's a private effort. and We need that too. Another piece of thought from our weekend, this weekend, we went and helped our daughter move, and she's in Philly, and we went through an area that is um, difficult. Places boarded up right next to places where people live. I associate with Philadelphia so much those tight houses, just infinite rows of houses all over Philadelphia. And so there's one that's abandoned with, you know, weathered um, press board over the, the windows, and then there's one that's painted right beside it. How do you live in an area like this? There wasn't a tree to be found on any sidewalk, at least in New York, there are little trees along the way of houses smashed up next to each other. So we began to think, like, how do people come out of this situation? There seems to be so much that keeps people trapped in such a circumstance. Should you be friendly to your neighbors or not friendly to your neighbors? Where does this start? What's the education system look like for the public school kids in this neighborhood? The questions went on and on and on, and indeed, it's bigger than any one person can tackle. In fact, we could all debate on where to start and then never get started. I raise up all of this not because I want to talk about politics. I'm not trying to promote that there's a private plan or a public plan to the solutions of the ills of our world. I raise it all up because I want to acknowledge that our salvation in God's kingdom on earth, as well as God's eternal reign, is collective. It's what we do with each other. We are tied to one another as God's creation. And some of our efforts we won't see the fruits of. We do it simply because we feel God calling us into it and we carry our little piece and our little place so that it can link in with other people's parts. And our work as individuals is to figure out how our part feeds into other people's as well. This is what I love about the book of Hebrews that Paul has written this letter to the Hebrews. So these are people that know the stories of the Jewish faith. They're Jewish people. And he takes up, we, we were reading some of this last week, but he continues, by faith the people passed through the Red Sea as if it were dry land, but when the Egyptians attempted to do so, they were drowned by faith. They were drowned. I am struck by this because, you know, Moses tried to get his people out several times and Pharaoh kept changing his mind. And then Moses says, we got to go. 
And so they did, but you know that people freaked out as soon as they got on the other side of the Red Sea and said, this is what you brought us out for? We were better off back there. I'm struck by how the Exodus was the empowering story for the enslaved black Americans. It was by faith that they ventured off the plantation into the wilderness where they were literally hunted. They had to have relationship with one another and with God to even hold fast to this idea that a new freedom could be theirs. Harriet Tubman was called Moses for that very reason. She was going to get her people safely through the passage. And if one person defected, everyone was at, at risk. Everyone. So you know she carried a gun. That's part of her story because she couldn't have someone falling off and putting the group at risk. This is hard stuff. It doesn't all make sense right away. And those people who reached freedom were not in the promised land when they got there. It was death to everyone who didn't work together for everyone's sake. But these people, these black Americans that had been enslaved, that knew themselves as not fully human, they became part of the first fruits of the new kingdom of freedom. And that's why we remember them, because they sacrificed so much to help others believe that freedom was actually possible. And you know that division most certainly happened. In Hebrews, Paul goes on to talk about these stories, and I love this line, like, and what more should I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. And I'm like, I feel you, I feel you, Paul. We don't have time. You don't want to stay here for the whole story. We're talking weeks and months to get the details in and dialogue, and then you'd have a question, and then I would want to tell you more, or someone else would remember something. Well, I'd definitely have you there, Father John, because you remember different things than me. But this is the point. These stories are too big. So how do we enter into the largeness of God for a new possibility without getting admired in the immensity of what God is trying to do? I listened to a podcast this weekend called Turning to the Mystics, and this particular episode was entitled, What is Mystical Contemplation? James Finley was the teacher in this podcast. This comes out of um, the Center for Action and Contemplation that Richard Rohr founded in New Mexico, and it's just been a wealth of goodness, at least in my life and many others. But James Finley talks about what is mystical contemplation, how do we enter into the depths of these stories so that we can know them and find ourselves in them. It invites us to tap into something bigger and deeper than our own agenda. We need to tap into something deeper and bigger than eliminating, eliminating climate crisis. We need to tap into something deeper and bigger than eliminating poverty. We need to tap into something deeper and bigger than securing water for all people. If it's just our agenda, we grow weary. It's when we tap into what God is wanting to do that we find ourselves restored again and again to bring about the creation that God wants to see happen. We have to tap into God's love, God's deep love for all of creation in order for this story of God's salvation to not be about us, but to be about what God is doing in the world. So we read as James Finley encourages us, the stories of our scripture. We read about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah. We read about David and Samuel and the prophets, not in order to understand the epic narrative of God's saving acts in the world, although that can be an outcome, 
But in order to know these people, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, Rahab, to know them as people in time and space with their own experience of injustice and wrongs in the world. And by becoming in relationship to them, we find ourselves. We say, me too. Me too, oppression. Me too, injustice. Me too, confusion. Me too, fear. Me too, uncertainty. We hear in their stories our own and we receive an invitation by God to enter into relationship. Faith is what develops in relationships. God will not drag us into relationship. We must choose. God will place in front of us uncomfortable evidence time and again that our salvation is linked with one another. And we have to decide whether or not that's going to be enough to move us into deeper relationship with God and one another. I pray that we might see in these discomforts an invitation to an ever deeper relationship with God and with one another. Amen.